Hola, yo soy Sandrine. Buongiorno, mi chiamo Crista. Welcome to Step Into Mondays, the podcast where you hear our brains at work. It's always a scary, scary thought. <laughs> yes, and today I'm super glad that they, they, they get to see someone else's brain at work, right? <laughs> I know, my brain has been so tired that... I'm glad to have another, a guest on because she gets to do all the work. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So we want to welcome our um, guest. It's uh, Miss Linda Egnatz. She is a uh, retired Spanish teacher. She was the actual teacher of the year for 2014. And she is currently the executive director for the Global Seal of Biliteracy program. So welcome, Miss Linda. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about you, please? Well, thank you for the introduction and uh, for the invitation to, to share today. So I would say that um, it's one of the hardest things for me to do is to leave the classroom because teaching and working with language learners is really at the heart of my passion. And it is, um, you know, and I was told, you know, I was, everyone said, you know, you'll be able to empower or impact so many more learners in this new role. But honestly, I do miss the classroom and I get uh, every opportunity I get, I'm in a classroom to observe or to see how is language, you know, being lear learning, being impacted um, through language credentialing. And we're seeing that in lots of different spaces. So just, um, you know, I taught um, at the high school level. I taught at the college level at Purdue University for a short time um, and then did some methods teaching here at DePaul University in Chicago area where I currently live now. So, um, so that, you know, sort of what happens in the classroom is really important to me. And for me as the, in my role as the uh, Global Seal of Biliteracy Executive Director, what happens in the classroom is being impacted by, by some of the programs that we can adopt. And so that's what I'd like to share about today. Okay, excellent, excellent. So, well, let's get started then. Why don't you um, go ahead and share with us about this, the, the Global Seal, well, the Seal of Biliteracy and then, you know, what prompted the Global Seal, et cetera. So the state seals of biliteracy, which are now in 39 states, um, were really an effort that began in, in the state of California in 2011 as a way to uh, retain, um, especially Spanish speakers, heritage learners, um, and to recognize that language as a, as a heritage language for them. Um, and so as a way to kind of do, you know, do that recognition, it became a senior award um, to be able to keep those students in school. And so we see that kind of as that um, onset program. And even today, that's the largest state in terms of the number of students who are getting the state seal of biliteracy. But it began really organically. It began um, by districts. And so it has a lot of autonomy today still by districts because it was sort of a, a uh, grassroots up as opposed to a top-down program. And we see the second state um, of New York adopting a state seal of biliteracy uh, by then uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, but it was by executive order and then sent to sort of 
go to the bilingual education department sat really kind of um, dormant for almost five years before the program was really implemented. Hmm. But I read about the New York um, adoption um, in uh, the Language Educator uh, magazine by Actful. And it was just a little paragraph blurb in the news section. But as a classroom teacher, I was teaching um, upper level Spanish um, level three. I was teaching AP Spanish language and culture and then AP Spanish um, literature and culture. And I saw that as uh, that, that gonna be this carrot that they couldn't resist. <laughs> because I saw a lot of students either drop out early or do enough to get by to get the, low, the grade or, um, and, and students who could do more, but because there wasn't an incentive to do more, they just opted out. And I saw a lot of heritage learners um, not take advanced level AP courses because of fear of mm -hmm. maybe not measuring up or not having the grammar um, oftentimes or having to sort of buckle down and actually do work is, you know, a lot of AP students would get senioritis. <laughs> they just are done. And so I thought, what is it that will change that dynamic? Is it, you know, that saying, if we always do, you know, what we've always done, we're going to continue to get the same thing. Mm -hmm. At the same time as this was happening, I had um, completed the oral proficiency interview sort of Raider training and had learned some things that were I was implementing in my classroom in terms of proficiency. And so we kind of put those two pieces together and I became an advocate at the state level for the Illinois State Seal of Biliteracy. And I saw all of a sudden what it did to my students. They were, what do we do to get this? And then parents, I want, the parents would come into an eighth grade uh, to ninth grade open house and say, well, I want my student to get that. So they were willing to add a summer school class. They were willing to defer um, an, a required course um, in order to keep that four year uh, language sequencing curriculum intact, especially if they'd begun in middle school at the seventh or eighth grade level. And mm -hmm. parents um, were willing to do that because they saw this seal as something important. And students are oftentimes looking for, you know, what will set them apart. And for the first time in our history, and I've you know, I've taught about language history and, you know, we can go back to, you know, where did language become unpopular in, in, in the States? And um, through some of the world wars where people were suspect of people who spoke other languages. And so it, this was the first time where in the country we had political entities, state governments willing to say, we think language and being bilingual is important. It's mm -hmm. important for our national security. It's important for our economy. It's important to support diversity and heritage learners. And I'm, we have to do this. It, this this is, is a huge step forward for the language field, but also for our heritage learners and, and our, our non-heritage learners, our standard learners. So for me, that was just like, I'm, whatever it takes. And so Illinois became sort of state number three. And we, you know, it, it just sort of took off from there. But um, as I started to work with other states then who were in the process of adoption, um, most of the states adopted as a program for public schools. And that's because it's run by the Department of Education and that's who they're tasked with supervising. Mm -hmm. And they are overtasked. Typically they're under 
underpaid and overworked and they don't have, uh, you know, they That's cover, a, yeah. Yeah, you know, the State Department of Education, they cover multiple areas. Oftentimes the person in charge of language isn't even a language person. They're exactly. just given that yeah. responsibility. And mm -hmm. so to task them with schools outside of their, their normal purview is even more work. So most states only opt have this program for those high school seniors in public schools. So there were a lot of gaps. Um, in my state of Illinois, only about, right now we're up to about 35% of our schools that participate in the state SEAL program. And we've had it for six years now, almost seven years. So that, what about students that um, are in schools that aren't participating? What about students that are in heritage community schools, they're learning Polish in the weekends? What about, schools that um, you know are, are for example we have uh, University of Illinois had a university high school but because it was selective enrollment it couldn't be included mm. and so we had all of these students um, that were left out and I would get calls from the parents what do I do how do I help my kid get this and I had no options there were no choices and so we coupled that with the fact that all of a sudden we have something that's a viable credential and we were treating it like an award. And this is what, because it's given at sort of a, a senior celebration, it comes across as here is your honor, here is your award for what you did with language. And it almost becomes as a certificate, the end result, the end game. It's like we're saying you just won the race, here's your trophy. Right, and it's over, yeah. That's and absolutely it's over. Yeah. And, and, and then for most states, because there is a variance from state to state as to what their criteria is, but the majority of states with a state seal have chosen that intermediate mid because it's doable, it's achievable, and we want an award that's achievable. Otherwise, it becomes moot. Mm -hmm. But we send the message to students that you arrived in your language, you're bilingual, you have a seal of biliteracy, and you're only an intermediate mid. Yeah, <laughs> and, and there's and that's the entry point of functionality. That's where we we can get off the bench and play the game as a JV play player. But there's still you know that further advanced you know intermediate high, and then there's the whole advanced realm, and then we can get to superior, and then we can you know. So we've just told them that they've arrived, and I have a problem with that because too many of my st I have students who with hard work and focus and, and my whip um, would arrive at, inter they, I could get them to intermediate mid at the end of a second year course Wow! for wow. some of those students. And certainly for my level three students, that was a possible. Mm -hmm. And so now they've, they've arrived, they've achieved, and they can drop out of the course because they're gonna get what they want on their transcript. And so we know um, from the, the data and the research that's been done, that students um, will work toward that goal and they're excited about it. They see it as a language credential for the future. They see it as having future, future purposefulness. <laughs> and that's really important. They see it as useful for a job. They see it as useful for college or college placement or even advanced placement credit. And so when they see the value, now they're taking the language course not to meet a college entrance requirement or um, maybe even you know a school requirement but um, or to fill in the electives needed for you know to participate in college sports or whatever that might be but rather they're 
in it for the language and they're in it for proficiency because that proficiency is a part of the goal. It's not how many language classes you took. It's not seat time. It's actually what can you do with what you've acquired. And so for me, when that opportunity then to opened up to take on this role as an executive director of a brand new program that was going to open up the gates and fill in the gaps for those who had no opportunity to get a state seal. And then beyond that empower college students uh, who really do need a job credential and have unless they're a major or a minor, they have no way to articulate their language skill. Um, an HR never, uh, you know, never goes in and looks at their transcript. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we have the way, a power to, to take that dynamic and really change it. And, you know, whether it's adults or college students or high school students or even some middle school students, we created this three award or three credential level pathway. So we say from the very beginning, great, congratulations, you're at functional fluency. That's what we refer to our intermediate mid goal as, but there's more to go. Let's get to working fluency at advanced low. Let's go beyond that and be professional fluency at our advanced high level. And so the goal then became, let's start them on a pathway where they not only see the need for a four-year sequence in high school or starting in middle school, but they see that beyond, they continue that into college learning so that you're not one and done. You're not, it's not over. Um, you actually can move on through college and get to the next level by continuing your language study in college um, and, and then travel as an adult and continue using it on your job. And so that really became for me the impetus because lifetime language learning um, is really a joy. And I, yeah, let's just open it up as opposed to, you know, we were, I think when we, you know, we turn that trophy into a tool and we can change the, the conversation in the United States about the importance of and value of being bilingual. Um, there's a, a lot of the workforce that says, you know, there's jobs and we can't fill them with, we don't have bilinguals to fill them. But we're graduating bilinguals that are on their way to doing that, but we, we kind of have, they, they fall off the cliff. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have a pipeline to connect the two spaces. And that's really what I see Global Seal as, is a pipeline to connect our language learners with a pathway to ongoing learning into meaningful use in their life. Mm -hmm. So you have the, so the global has that one level. I mean, I'm sorry, the still has that one level and then the global is the one that's picking up the rest of it. It and really has those, the professional and all of those levels. Yeah, it really does depend a little bit on the states. There are a few right. states that do have two tiers, yeah, um, but okay. most um, states, if they have two tiers, their top tier would be at that advanced low because we're talking about a program for high school students. Right. Um, but most states are at intermediate mid. Um, quite a few of the Midwest states are at intermediate high. And we have a few other states that have taken that, that role. But most states have a single level but there are some that have multiple levels. But the Global Seal intentionally wanted to take this and turn this from this, really inspired by a high school award, and turn it into a meaningful um, credential. And, and we're being, um, you know, there's excitement not just in the United States, but uh, we, you know, we're, we're using the Global Seal in other countries as well that see that as a way to value language learning. So it's really exciting. It is. I didn't realize that other countries were looking at that. That's great. 
Um, when I do have another question, when you were still teaching and you presented that to your students saying, hey, here is the skill of biliteracy, here's what we're going to work on. Did you have, how much did you have to sell it to them? Beyond the, you're going to have another thing on your diploma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was easy. I always say it's like, I do, I, I sell chocolate chip cookies. I've, it's really been easy. Um, because students understand the power of something they can put on a resume as a skill set. And so um, a good kind of story that I tell um, is one of my students, we were being interviewed by the Chicago Tribune, um, the, the state seal um, as our pilot school, my particular classroom specifically was interviewed um, and we we're on the front page of the Chicago Tribune. They asked one of my students about it and he was qualifying for the state seal with his um, advanced placement um, AP test in Spanish. And they, he said, well, I told my boss that I got um, a four on my AP test. And he's, he said, my boss said, well, wow, that's great. He said, so then two months later, we get the state seal and I'm going to get the state seal based on my AP test score. So he said, I told my boss I was going to get a state seal of biliteracy. My boss said, wow, you must be really good at languages. I'm going to give you a raise because you could probably talk to some of our clients. And that concept of, uh, of the credential spoke to the lay workforce. It spoke to employers. Uh, it just has a different kind of dynamic than a vague test score that no one understands. And so for the students, it was this cool piece. And they did, and in some states, there are five states where they actually provide automatic college credit for their state seal of literacy recipients. And oh, so, um, and Illinois is one of those. We worked for that, we got that um, into, in uh, 2017. And that's been a really, that's a, a huge piece. It's a really big empowerment tool for our English language learners, for example. Uh, be, and for our heritage learners, because we have students with languages that they have at home that aren't taught in a high school, and they have no other way to articulate that level of skill. But by getting a state seal of literacy in several states, um, Illinois included, it can, and I know that that's in the Alabama piece, that that can count as that sort of, you know, count as language credit, high school language credit as a competency-based piece. And that's really important. So they're, they're, they're getting something and it has some value. So um, I think that's another kind of aspect of it that we see where you have a credential that is really recognizing language as a competency skill and not just because you've gotten a particular grade. It, and it's a, it's a leveler. So we see um, students who were going to drop out. In fact, we see this in the studies where students said, if I would have known about the SEAL, I would have stayed in language. And it gives them a reason to retain. Um, and the real power for building retention in a language program, and we're seeing the global SEAL as well as the state SEAL do that, both in high school and in college settings, is that is if you do the benchmark testing. Because if you only give the test, maybe like an AP test that senior year in May at the end, um, it becomes a pass-fail test. They either get the seal or they don't, and they have no remedy. Um, there's no way to change the outcome because it's a senior award only. So what we've tried to create with the global seal is to open that up 
So as soon as you meet that criteria of intermediate mid, you get your, your functional seal. We has a silver embossed seal on the certificate, um, identifies the language, identifies the level, uh, can articulate the level with uh, explanation to an employer, um, can be transcripted to a college. Um, and so we have that piece. But now, let's say you're a sophomore or junior, like, well, when you get to that lowest level in all four skill areas, if it's a four skill test, we were just kind of talking about that, um, then all of a sudden, you real the student says, "Wow, I'm you know maybe I'm at intermediate mid in my weak area, but my high area I'm but in listening or reading I'm at advanced low." And they so they see themselves not at that lower level; they really see themselves as already achieving the next level of award. They just have to work on the low level. So what we do is we kind of work on, you know, there's some feedback and, and it becomes almost a formative assessment to growth. Because the student says, wow, I'm already at the next level. I should take another semester or another year because I bet I could get that score up to the next level. And we saw working with uh, Albuquerque Public Schools in a year, they had 11% of their students leveled up from intermediate mid um, to that working, that functional fluency up to the working fluency. And that doesn't suggest that every, you know, that that intermediate that they did that in every piece, but they brought up that one week area. Maybe um, it, maybe they were already at the next level in another skill. And so, it, the power of retention is really truly in providing formative feedback to the students in a way that they are, understand their strengths and their weaknesses and where they want to focus. And now they're a team player with you. So you become more of a coach and we're going to win as a team. We're all going to get there. And that's how the dynamic we really saw with kids, that they, they wanted to help each other. Uh, you know, when they did test day, you know, we, we see pictures of it, you know, testing for our, our state seal or testing for the global seal. And there's a group of them and it's like, they're going to win this together. And it's, it's, it's really, it's really fun. And, um, you know, I, it, as a teacher, it's so much easier to teach when they want to learn. <laughs> Instead of just Isn't sitting there trying to pass with the minimum lowest level just to get a credit. Right, to talk them into it. So what's, what has been the biggest struggle that you've encountered with the SEAL, either as a teacher or in, your, in the position you're in now? I think um, in both cases, um, help it, getting the word out to students. Um, testing is always a challenge. Um, testing, um, because maybe in some schools because of cost, in my own particular school district, students had to bear the cost of testing whether it was an AP test or an alternative test, we uh, were using the stamp test in um, Biovant assessment. And that was much less expensive than an AP test. Um, actually, but we were able to offer that, you know, lower levels. Um, some of the, um, the Apple or the stamp test can be broken up. So maybe in a second year class, you can offer half of the test. Um, and, and have a little less expense, but the cost of the funding testing, there are districts that pay for it. Um, there are districts that write grants to pay for it. Um, and there are districts like mine where, where the parents paid for it, but they saw that maybe $20 test as worthwhile as a credential, um, especially if it could earn in my state of Illinois, eight hours of college credit. So with the University of Illinois. So that was a huge piece. And so they weigh that out, but that um, the cost of 
testing is a challenge. Um, and for our less commonly taught languages or those heritage languages, um, for the school that may be, um, you know, that's out of their comfort zone, maybe to test in a language they don't offer. Um, and the tests are available, but that's, um, that becomes then a resource issue. Um, they, maybe they don't know how to find the test or the test is more expensive than the test that they're already giving. And then that becomes a question. So I would say the biggest challenge tends to fall into the area of testing, whether it's finding the test or paying for it. Um, and then getting the word out so that everyone who could qualify tests, not just those who are maybe in a language class. I, I know I was excited when, um, you know, I heard of the global seal because college level, you don't have the seal. And like you said, you, you, and we're fighting for those major majors and minors, but they can't double, triple, quadruple minor or major and stuff so but then they want to keep up with the language so what do you give them so it's like oh man that is great but talking the admin is the is the more difficult part well yeah. I, I think too one of the cool things about the seal in college is that you know the majors there's such a wide variety of proficiency levels that the majors can achieve if, if someone is fortunate enough to study abroad during their four years, you know, chances are they are going to have a higher proficiency level. And so with the global seal, it's say, hey, look, man, I'm advanced low, whereas this other major may just be intermediate, mid, intermediate, high, because they were able to have that other experience. And so because most of the time, you know, the majors are all lumped together and it's assumed that everyone has the same proficiency. And and, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They absolutely no, do don't. No. And I think we've seen such a growth in the college um, area for Global Seal. We started out around 11% and then it was a pretty steady 15% of our awards and now it's about 20%. Mm -hmm. um, and we're seeing them used in, in different ways. So we're seeing um, some universities do it as a two-year sort of a, that, that sort of exit requirement if they have that for a program, but that informing the students early enough in that frame, that time frame in a March or April, that has been um, led to, especially because of the four-skill test, we'll see the students come out at functional fluency as a baseline, but again, they're seeing another one or more of their skills at a higher level, and they're like, I think I'll take another semester. Uh, we, we were at uh, Denison University has been seeing um, their uh, Japanese and uh, Chinese programs increase as a result of that in the third year programs. It's really made a big change. And so we see that sort of what happened at the high school level is also happening at the college level for retention. The other piece we're seeing is a number of schools using it. Um, for example, we've been working almost since our beginning uh, with Indiana University with their nursing program. Um, there are a number of uh, career areas where there are very substantial pay differentials if you're bilingual. Um, and the medical field is one of those, um, social services, uh, law enforcement, um, and then international business and makes you just more employable as well. And so we're seeing some specific schools um, actually provide that as a testing, not even necessarily within their language programs, but if you are bilingual and you want to, you've had the language and you want to test, um, adding this credential to your resume is an empowerment tool. 
And the third area we're seeing is just really the growth in, um, and you mentioned the administration at the college level. Um, and we're seeing this to some degree with uh, dual credit for high school students as well, is the idea of micro-credentialing. And micro-credentials are really big right now at the university level because they are looking for ways to um, you know, improve employability, um, and everybody's looking at a, a micro-credential, not as a course you took, but as a competency and a skill that's been somehow externally verified. And so we do that through the kinds of tests that Global Seal offers. And to be able to offer these micro-credentials, if they don't have enough class hours to get minors in all of their skill sets, but they have enough skill to be able to um, to demonstrate that in some external you know validity you know test exam and then to be able to provide a micro credential uh, and and so that piece is just really expanding you know what we see as our kind of mission which is you know so that everyone wants to have a language credential on their resume <laughs> Mm -hmm. And, you know, getting that out there, because when that begins to happen, we've changed our entire field um, top down. We see, we'll see the increase of dual language and immersion programs. We'll see more schools start earlier than high school. I mean, when all of a sudden the workplace and the general uh, field, you know, out there says, oh, do you have a global seal? Do you have a state seal? Do you have a language credential? Then that becomes the value you start from the beginning. So that's our goal. You know, it's a little insidious, but <laughs> we're excited about it. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. Well, one thing that, um, you know, a colleague of mine and I were talking about is, you know, having our entire department actually take a proficiency test because so many of us have not had that experience ourselves. And so, it, you know, it's kind of hard to prepare students for something that you've never done either. And so, um, you know, I think that's an important part of it too. Um, you know, the teachers can actually get the global seal. They can, you know, have that credential and then they will have that experience because one of the, the questions that I have, and it may or may not have affected you, but I just wondered how your teaching, you know, maybe changed when you realized that, wow, this is my goal. I want them to get this proficiency level. So if they can't conjugate the plus pan perfecto del subjuntivo perfectly, that's okay. I mean, you know, how did that change what you do in the classroom? Well, and for me, it started really with, you know, with doing that um, the sort of OPI rater training. Um, my state language organization, ICTFL, here in Illinois, started doing that in the summer and offering it to teachers. Um, and that started opening my eyes to um, what I had to really do because I saw not just what's understood, first of all, what the students could do, but I started seeing what students uh, did to avoid what they couldn't do. <laughs> I saw, I started seeing this circumlocution and I'm like, oh, that's what they're doing because they really can't do it. And I started to see in my grading, like I had, I was grading for the, you know, not grading for risk and growth, but, um, and that sort of messy intermediate space, but rather for the, I was almost holding them down um, by expecting that sort of memorized perfection of the novice. And so it changed my grading practices. It certainly changed uh, what I focused on. I started really focusing on stamina and um, 
and endurance in terms of um, reading to make, you know, like we, like in learning, teaching inference, um, they would be upset. Like, I, I don't know that word. How can you expect me to get the answer right? Um, but building risk um, into reading um, to extend the, the text type or, or the length and the organization um, of their writing and of their speech. When you provide a presentation, are you providing supporting points? Um, you know, where's the evidence? And starting to really look at um, how to expand that because the text type or the, the length and the stamina is usually the biggest barrier between the novice and the intermediate level and certainly as you move up into that advanced realm. And I started, you know, thinking about the idea of practice as being so much more critical. So I would test before I would teach something and then I would test it and then I would teach something new and then I would test it. And then the following year, guess what? They didn't remember any of it. And so to start thinking about what are the most critical pieces of the next proficiency level I want them to get to and then teach and practice that, you know, um, without end. So that every, if, if we, if intermediates need to be able to tell a story, to do descriptive narrative, in the, then they have to practice that. Um, and that involves things like, you know, strings of sentences. And it involves things like description. And that gets to practice, you know, adjective agreement. Uh, it involved things like sequencing and transition. So first and second, um, and being able to make things smooth. Um, it meant I had to make the story more interesting by providing details, which are subpoints and added to the length and the organization of the text. So I started looking at that and practicing that on a regular basis. So it was a huge impact on, on just in, instruction, but also on assessment and how I looked at and, created, and creating open-ended assessments instead of something that was just to fill in the blank or a singular sentence. Like instead of writing five sentences, you know, in the subjunctive, um, I would say something like, you know, write a, you know, write a letter or, um, you know, about how to be successful in school. What, what are the do's and don'ts? And then find out what they do. So maybe they choose, don't, they don't use subjunctive. Maybe they use, uh, you know, something like, uh, Complementary infinitive, you should study more, you need to talk to the teacher, you um, have to do your homework. And that's, that tells me something about their language level. Uh, maybe they used commands, or maybe they were fancy and used subjunctive, but, or, or, or a combination of the above to show me the breadth of their skill set. Mm -hmm. And so those are the kinds of things I began to coach. So um, adopting a, an end goal in the case of a state seal or the global seal, adopting an end goal changes everything. And it also meant I had to leave some things out. You know, there was the fluff and the things that maybe I did enjoy, but they weren't, they weren't productive. We have a limited amount of time and everything I did became intentional, including conversations I would have with the students. So instead of greeting a student, an advanced, you know, AP student with, hi, how are you? I said, you know, how was your last class? And asked for a past narrative. Are we going to win the game this weekend? And asked for, um, you know, sort of a, a hypothetical or what are your plans for tonight? What are you going to do after school? And ask for something future. I mean, I began to be intentional about everything mm -hmm. because there was a big, there's high stakes and the kids were excited about getting there. And I think too, um, if you've gone through the proficiency testing experience, so you can kind of give them some tips, but I think 
Yeah, you really have to know what it is you're looking for at each level. Because one thing that is shocking, and I think it is for most teachers, and it's where the frustration gets, is that, yeah, at the novice level, their grammar is really good, but it's because it's memorized chunks. And limited. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but they're grammatically, you know, good. And then they get to the intermediate. They're supposed to be getting better, but that's where you encounter the most mistakes is at that intermediate level. And so teachers are frustrated. They're like, I don't understand. They were so good and now they're making all these errors. And so they don't understand. Well, it's because now they're actually creating their own language instead of just parroting what you said. And so I think teachers really have to, to get that part of it. And one thing that I've been working on all summer long, especially for my asynchronous online courses, you know, are some strategy videos for how they can level up. Because it's like you said, text type, how, how long are the sentences? What kind of, you know, strings of sentences? Um, and looking at more of the grading rubrics because you don't want, I mean, yes, language accuracy is a part of it, but I don't, I want them to be risk takers. That's one thing that really struck me, um, you know, is that my kids all want to stay safe. And so it's always, me gusta, me gusta, soy, soy. <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> let's, let's expand that a little bit. But it goes back to grades because especially, at, at the university level, at my university, the medical, everybody wants to go to med school, PT school, I mean, something, pharmacy school. And like it or not, they've got to have, you know, the 4-0. And so they can, they, they, they're going to play it safe so they can get that four credit hour A because that's huge for their GPA. And it's like, okay, I've got to encourage them to take risks if I want them to get out there in you know, and level up their proficiency. So yeah, I think that the, you know, looking at the seal and trying to get them to uh, a certain proficiency level it will also have a tremendous impact on teaching itself. Yeah, and I think teachers, again, I was one of those teachers that um, until, you know, a lot much later, I'd never, I, I, I got my certification when they didn't require a test. So, you know, um, I had no idea what my proficiency level was. I, we didn't even know about proficiency levels. So, um, you know, at that point, you know, it, and if you've been teaching, let's say you've had a higher level, but if you've been teaching in, you know, speaking slowly, comprehensible mm -hmm. language with choosing the cognate so that's a word they understand and, and all of that in levels one and two, your own language has changed if you haven't been doing anything recently. And so taking that test, and we have a number of school districts where the teachers just as a group that are taking the test and adding their global seals. And it's informative to a teacher as to what the tests are like, but also to what does it take? Um, and sometimes teachers are a little surprised by where they score and it's not necessarily what they couldn't do, it's what they didn't know they needed to do. And so a lot of teachers are like, well, I could have done better, I just didn't realize. And you, if you if we don't show we, we don't show students what the what the A looks like, um, they're never going to get there. Um, and in create and that idea of creating risk is so important because mm -hmm. if you don't put it either as an extra credit or as the only the only way to get the A is to be a, go above and beyond, then then we've sent the message of what what else is acceptable, and and we've we've 
you know, those students that can get, that will get an A no matter what because they want the A, uh, they, you know, they'll do the reach. But if it's not required, the question is like, well, what do we have to do to get an A? They always want to know what the minimum requirement is. To, and I'm like, you know, I hate that question. I just like, well, show me what you can do. Yes. And, and the idea, the other piece of, you know, I've even done, you know, on some, not as a wholesale across the curriculum, but certainly in some aspects of, of maybe a writing assignment is to provide, you know, growth grades, growth points, you know, so you're, you know, I've added because this is growth over last year. Um, I think the downside of grades is that a grade is, um, you know, if somebody's a, a B at the beginning and there's still a B at the end, they don't know that they had any language growth. Mm -hmm. even and if and i'm certainly between september and may they've they've learned more and they can do more but if they're still getting the same b they see themselves as not have improvement ah. because we look at grade the grade as an improvement and i get your make your grades better and so we think that that represents learning and learning isn't it's just that the the criteria changed so i think you know those are some you know that's one of the things if you incorporate a state sealer or a global seal program um, that becomes your outcome goal. And so, you know, do you then break that down, sort of a begin with the end in mind and have some backward design to say, well, then by the end of our first year curriculum, you should be at this proficiency level. And then does your instruction and your assessment match that? Mm -hmm. And then build in the growth by, well, if you're above the targeted level, then, you know, it's an A plus or whatever. <laughs> so you get, you know, you're, you're, you're building the risk factor as part of the program not just a but part to build it. it you have to teach yourself what it is you're up against and and it resonated with me as for i'm an ap tester or an ap scorer and i don't teach high school anymore but it still influenced how i'm grading my my college classes because what's the first question we ask in ap when we're scoring is the task complete yeah yeah that's question one right mm -hmm. and yeah. In a way, it's kind of the same thing with the OPI, where they're able to complete this task. Exactly. And then the you're function. looking at how well. And so once you're able to get to that, that's when you can let go of the, like you said, oh, let's do the subjunctive. I'm so tired of hearing, <laughs> oh, we need to have our students study the subjunctive in French by the end of year two. And it's like French people avoid it. I've heard that. <laughs> yes, we avoid it. I've been talking to my mom about it, and it's hilarious because my mom, you know, she's in France and struggles with trying to learn English as for years because she's gone to the grammar translation method, right? And so she can't have a conversation with anyone because she'll tell you something and then she'll go, I made a mistake. Well, correct me. What was my mistake? It's like, who cares? But she can't let go of it. But she'll tell you all the theory. And she's like, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And I'll bring up subjunctive. And she goes, oh, my God, don't tell me about subjunctive. I hate it. I try to avoid it any chance I can. I will turn the sentence a different way so I don't have to deal with subjunctive. Right? Yeah, and, and it's and it's different. I think that's that's a piece that's really um, important. I always say, like, C is complete. You know, B is better and A is amazing and awesome, you know, and above and beyond. And I think if that becomes the way we look at grading, it simplifies it for the student. 
And honestly, a person who got the job done, and I always say, you know, they found the bathroom, they managed to order food, they survived the situation. And I have an awful lot of students having traveled with students in lots of different places. You know, we see that happening. The student that's not getting an A is out there getting it done in the real world. Absolutely. They're fun and that's the point of their functioning. Mm -hmm. Let's give them credit for that. Well, and tests, we're looking at that they are having a good day, but what if they're not? Yeah. We all have our bad days. We all have our days at work where we're not bringing it 100%. And we don't get graded on it officially. You know, it kind of goes into an overall <laughs> kind of thing. But so while we're doing out to our students, they have a test. You know, finals, it's worth 20% of your overall grade. It can ruin the whole work that they've done the whole semester because they were so stressed they had a bad day or they were so stressed they didn't sleep well so they had a bad day and they flunked it. Or they've had three exams in one day. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the place where when you have those discrete sort of grammar points on a test or something or the, the gotcha moments like, oh, but you didn't read the extra part or whatever, we, you know, that really exacerbates that exact issue. Whereas if you do something that's a little more holistic, mm -hmm. then they tend to, um, they do better, but you also see, you know, what, what does the more real world, what, instead of the performance, what does the proficiency really look like? And um, I think students were really excited by when I, even in instruction time, I would say, well, this is our target. This is what I want you to be able to do for this assessment, this summative piece. But if you want to level up, if you're working toward the state sale or the global sale, then here's something you could try. And mm -hmm. I would have students turn in their tests and say, I can't wait for you to read my number three, you know, question three, because I really did, you know, and they would be so excited. I would have them, you know, there's things we can do, you know, put a star by your best one. And then maybe that, that you know, and give them an opportunity to sort of shine. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then they're again, a part of that. And I think those are the, you know, that metacognition that comes with, are we a team and making progress? I mean, what I learned a lot from coaches and what do they do on, a, on, on, you know, on Monday is they watch, you know, they, you know, after the Friday night high school or a game or a Saturday college game or a Sunday pro game, you know, they watch game tape, you know, we do reflection. And we talk about, you know, what could have made this better and, and where was the mistake and where did, we, you know, and that part of reflection is such an important key part of getting students to a seal because it is about what you can do. And it is about growth. And when they realize that you're on their team to help them get there, you know, again, the dynamic of the classroom changes. And it's not the teachers out there to give me, you know, to the gotch me moment, like, oops, I forgot to study that verb or that vocabulary word, but rather they're looking at, here's what I can do. How do I make it better? Because I'm going to get this at the end, um, you know, the trophy, the championship, um, it, it makes a difference. And it's been, it's been fun seeing that happen in the classroom, especially in a class that typically wasn't like that for me. Right. And I think something too, that when I started looking at proficiency levels, I think what's interesting is, is that, you know, a lot of teachers think, well, they are filling in the blank with the subjunctive, right? Well, but that's still novice level, right? you know, but they're like, no, but it's the subjunctive. Well, yes, but it's still one word. And I don't think that, you know, a lot of times 
um, if you're not familiar with you know what is required at each level you think well you're looking at the complexity of the grammar and thinking that that's the proficiency when it's really not i mean if a fill in the blank no matter what it is is still novice level right because the complexity of the grammar is number one um having the whole the whole package it's i know the part that leads into it i know how to frame the verb or form the verb but more importantly i knew that in this particular situation subjunctive was called for right and i did it intuitively without thinking ahead of time i could do it on demand mm -hmm. and not because just the last six weeks we practiced similar examples and sentences ad nauseum right yeah Absolutely. Um, and you had talked about, you know, the, the coaching and the reflection and whatnot. So when you're talking about reflection and what they can do to get to the next level, do you do that in the target language or do you take time out, uh, you know, and use that 10% English? I generally do it in the target language, but I do it in the sense of modeling and role modeling. So I would start out with an example that might meet that sort of C, complete the task. And then I would just ask in the target language, you know, can, is, can we make it better? Um, what, give me another example. Even if I'm in a novice class, I can say another, another example. Um, you know, I could say it's an A, it's a B. That, you know, and that's simple enough that they start to hear, they understand what I'm talking about. And then I would, you know, and solicit, let's work on, you know, in a, in a pair of practice in a small group. Can we take this example and make it bigger, make it longer, make it better? What else could we try? Um, there might be a place where I want to teach a memorized chunk of something or an advanced grammar in maybe a singular form or you know, the I form or something, and I might draw the board or, or do something like that to sort of illustrate it. But mm -hmm. typically, I think the best way to do it is through modeling and having the students coach work with you to say, well, I know how to make it better. Somebody in the class does. Somebody knows how to make it that little step higher. And then when we get to that ceiling, then maybe I could in inject something and hopefully I can do it in target if it's, but you know, if I needed to or felt like I could, maybe I would use that English piece. Um, but I think the modeling part is the where they can see uh, what it looks like. I think that was the a big aha for me because I felt like I got that when I did, for example, that oral proficiency unit. I saw it. I, I saw it visualized. And when you can, you know, they can visualize what the A looks like compared to the B. Then they know when they do their test, well, oh, okay, this probably looks like a B. And I'm not surprised by the answer. So again, creating those sort of open, com that conversation of like, and doing that before the test, not after the test when you say, oh, well, you should have. Well, why didn't you tell me before? I would have done that. I knew, because oftentimes they know how to do it. They just don't know what you want. That's absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Um, so one other thing, you just kind of shared one. Um, but we always, we have this little segment called the aha moment. And um, we like to share something that, I mean, and you could share a big aha moment that you've had recently, or, you know, perhaps just in your career or whatnot. Um, and then we, we like to share our aha moment. So if you want to think about that for a minute, Sandrine can share her aha moment. Oh, putting me on the spot, aren't you? 
Yes. <laughs> I usually do that to her. So she took, the, ah. she took, took her opportunity and ran with it. That's but right. That's okay because I'm ready. And my aha moment actually came this morning or came this morning. Whoa. Um, so I was listening to a podcast. I was listening to Overthrowing Education. And she touches on a whole lot of different topics and has guests and talks to them. And I was listening to the one they were talking about students and who don't like masks. You know, that whole thing about masks. And oh, that would be me. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, and as I was listening, I was reflecting back on my, on my journey with math that I, I'm good at math, but then again, I don't necessarily like math. But what I ended up saying was I'm good at math if I have a good teacher. That's kind of the way I ended up framing that. But as I was listening to the, the guest, and I, I'd have to, I should have written down his name, but um, I had that aha moment of it doesn't matter what we're teaching, we're all struggling with the same thing and trying to make our subject relevant. And it was interesting because he was talking about how math is taught into that vacuum and they were, they were commenting on, you know, oh, we'll teach you algebra and say, oh, you might need it 30 years down the road when you're working. And it doesn't resonate with kids. And that's kind of what's happened with language up until now, right? And I've, I've said it when I taught at the elementary school, when I did my one-year stint at the elementary school, and there was one class I was struggling with. And I told them, I said, you never know when you're going to need language. Look at me. I didn't want to learn English. And then... 10 years down the road, I didn't have a choice. I had to learn it so that I could survive and eat and find a bathroom and, you know, all of that. But that doesn't resonate with 10-year-old kids or 12-year-old kids. They couldn't care less that in 10, 20 years, whatever. And so that was kind of my aha moment that really education has to be overthrown and we have to put it back in context. So I'm glad we have something like the seal that um, you're part of that motion. We have proficiency that's putting it into beyond those verbs and plugging the, you know, put in the blank and conjugate this and whatever, because that goes nowhere. But I was like, man, if all of us could put our heads together, you know, from bottom up, but boy, what a struggle to get everybody there. Well, and I think too, part of, you know, the reason so many people maybe have an attitude, if you will, about language, or they think that language is impossible is because of previous methodology. I mean, mm -hmm. think of, I mean, it was all, I mean, I still remember I had one teacher who was the tail end of that audio lingual. And I mean, the conversation I remember, bonjour, ça va? Oui, ça va bien, merci. Et vous? I mean, I just had to memorize that conversation and get up and recite both sides of the conversation. Well, okay, that's great. But what if I ask somebody Sava and they say mal, <laughs> you know, how do I respond? Yeah. So, you know, that and then verbs and verbs and conjugating verbs, but then you can't use it in a sentence. And so I think that's what, so, that's why we hear so much. I took two years of language and I can't say a word. And that's mm -hmm. the predominant mentality 
of our generation right now. And so they're not seeing it as important. And so as educators, we've got to show the children, hey man, this is relevant, especially in today's world. And so then perhaps, and we've got to change our methodology and teach more for proficiency and you know, invite the parents in to go, oh wow, look at my kids speaking Spanish up there. And that's gonna give them, you know, that's gonna kind of maybe change their mentality a little bit. But I think that's, yeah, that's part of the problem um, too, that we, yeah. is the way it's been taught. No, it is. It absolutely is. And that was, that was kind of the thing, which I've always known that, but I thought it's interesting that other subjects, they are going through that same struggle. And, you know, with the math, they were talking about, you know, you're putting those two different trains. This one is living at this time. This one is living at that time. When are they going to meet? And they go to the, those kids. It makes no relevance. And the host was like, why not bring the train set in the classroom and let them play with it and figure it out and then use the math. And he was like, man, that's, I've never thought about it. That's great. And what he does is put it in perspective for the students, but that's kind of, yeah, our, our thing. We have to put it in perspective for our students. What can he do for you now? And for the parents in the K through 12, what is it going to do for your job later? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of the thing. We all know math is important, so kind of have to struggle through it. But languages, that's been the, that's been the debate, right? Like, I thought that was interesting in the, what you said, Linda, in the history when um, we started disliking languages. And I was like, wow, yeah, because there is a, a dislike of languages in this country of having to learn languages. It's not part of the culture where in Europe, where I grew up, we're not good at speaking them, but by golly, we'll, we'll try to learn them. <laughs> we'll spend lifetimes trying. I mean, I know my irregular verbs. I mean, earlier when I said it come to me and I was like, no, no, it came in the back of my mind. I had that whole thing to come, came, came, past, come, yes. I mean, I've learned to do it fast, but it's still ingrained 20 something years later, mm -hmm. which shouldn't it should just come naturally without having to think about it. But yeah, so anyway, that was kind of my aha moment. <laughs> so yeah, so what's yours, Krista? Well, have you had time to come up with it? I already had mine, Miss <laughs> Marty Pants. So um, no, I've had some conversations with lots of colleagues, you know, over the past week about various things and one, the thing that really kind of struck me, we've really been talking about, um, you know, that there's room in languages, especially at the intermediate level for them to, for our students to make mistakes, you know, and I did a learning strategy video where it's like, it's okay to make mistakes. That's normal. It's part of growth and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And it kind of just hit me though, that, you know, I extend that grace to my students, to my colleagues, but I don't really extend that to myself. You know, I expect everything to be perfect. And I'm not just talking about the language, you know, I'm talking about anything that I teach, you know, okay, my lesson plan or this activity, that activity. And, you know, I don't always extend myself that grace and that it's okay to make a mistake or to have a flop of a lesson because we all have them, but I'm so hard on myself 
when I do. And I mean, and Sandrine knows this really well, when we get our student evaluations at the university <laughs> level, okay, so you look at them, you're like, oh yeah, 4.7 out of five, that's, that, that's pretty good, you know, but then you start looking at their comments and you have, oh, Dr. Chambliss, this, that, <laughs> yeah, that, that, fabulous, fabulous, all stuff, he's like, well, I thought, well, you know, and she's negative, and you have one negative comment and 20 positive, and you're so down because you had that one negative, right? Mm -hmm. And my husband is always like, you're not going to make everybody happy. Look at how many people loved your class, you know? And so I've really got to focus on that more and extend myself the, the grace of it's okay to make a mistake that, you know, you, that's where we learn and that's where we grow. And so that was kind of my aha moment. So I'm really trying hard right now to say, well, you know, the students didn't like that video. They thought it was lame or whatever. Okay, let me try something different instead of getting all, you know, upset about it. So that's kind of my aha moment as, as an educator. We say it's okay for our students, but we have to make it okay for ourselves as well. But have you wondered why you don't want to extend that grace to yourself? Well, I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> well, there's that, but think I've about always... school. Think about all of our school years, what we're just talking about. Yeah, I know. Everything it was... had to be perfect. Yes. Every grade was, um, what's the word, P penalizing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you were so penalized to... for every, yes. You were penalized for the mistakes. You were not encouraged for the risk taking. You were not in encouraged for getting outside of the box. It was like, oh, you made a mistake. That was wrong. No, no, bad. You yeah, know? that's true. And the, to use a horrible expression, there is one, more than one way to skin a cat. And as we have not gone through that. And a lot of students still don't go through that. You expected that perfection all the time. You know, it's kind of like... I know my son always complained about math, to get back to math, how he, he would do something and maybe not show the work because he would look at it and just knew exactly how it went. So he'd write the answer. Well, he'd get penalized for it because he didn't show the work. Or he would do it a different way and get penalized because he didn't do it the way the teacher wanted him to do it. And it's like, well, the answer is right. Who cares? Yeah. He still got there. He still applied the thing. We have the same thing in language, you know, like you said, when you say, you're saying Sava, but you can say it a whole other host of ways, right? In English, you're like, how are you doing? How are you? What's up? Like, do you want to get more colloquial? What's hanging? You know, I mean, and there's more than one way to say it, but then your students, you've only, you've only, only taught them, how are you doing today? And so they encounter the, hey, what's up? And they're like, the sky I don't know what that means mm -hmm. true so that's probably where it's ingrained in us and then we have to break beyond that yeah no you're absolutely right I'm sure so that was my aha so Linda have you had time to come up with what a zillion probably <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm gonna sort of pick an aha that kind of combines both of where you well, both of of um of your of where you've been talking about um, in that idea of kind of wanting to be like perfect and all my students love me and everything. And I remember I would, you know, you want, I would do 
student surveys, I would still do that. I think it's really important to know your learner um, and do questionnaires. And one of those questions might be like, what's your favorite class? And if it wasn't my class, I always felt a little badly about that. Um, because I wanted to be the favorite teacher, right? <laughs> but I started thinking about that in a different way and to say, asking a question about what's their favorite class and if it's not my class, I, it actually is empowering me to find out what will make that student tick and what, will I, what could I offer um, in this, um, that will then engage that student. And so rather than thinking, um, because like math, there are students in your class that will say, think, I will never ever need this. Why mm -hmm. am I here? I'll never use this in the real my rest of my life. All I have to do is survive, get this credit and be out of here. And instead of change, and sort of then to change that dynamic is to say, each and every time I, I approach a new unit or a, a new you know, topic or vocabulary list or structure that I, I want to teach is like, where is this used in the real world? Where, how will I gauge my students with this particular topic? And then be able to take that to say like, okay, I, I remember I had an AP class where out of 23 students, 16 wanted to go into medical fields. I changed curriculum that year. I did a lot of different things that I brought in that we're, here's how you're going to use it in the future. And so if we can take the student that says, well, I like math and to say, well, then I need to be sure that I include how is language connected to math? How do mm -hmm. people who use math for a career use language? And I might be talking about, so if you wanna be an accountant because you really, you know, or a banker, here's because you like math, here's how would you use language? Where would language benefit? Um, if you're going to, I, I um, do seating charts. I d used, would do seating charts by career interest. And I remember I um, always had that sort of odd set of kids or they didn't quite match up. So I, one of them I had ended up with, they were sort of similar. One wanted to be, a, I think, a physical therapist and one wanted to be a psychiatrist and one wanted to be a pharmacist. It was just, but they were sort of odd. But I'm going to just throw them together. And um, so they, the PT person said, well, then I'll send them to you um, to get their drugs. And then, you know, I mean, <laughs> with the kids, but to be say, okay, so where does this vocabulary used in the, in the career space? Where is this structure? How, when would I have to greet people in my future career? And how would, what kind of people will I greet? Will, if I'm in a future career, will I be greeting people on a first name basis or will I have to be more formal? And to begin to start asking those kinds of questions as you're instructing. So students are automatically putting their own scenario in their head. Um, and then to think about how learning that, wow, a lot of teachers like science, you know, kids like science or they like, so I'm going to go talk to those teachers and what are you doing in your classroom that I can bring back to my classroom instead of thinking of language as this elective that's its own entity and we survive in our own end of the hallway to say, how do we integrate and collaborate? Um, how do we build on what you're doing so students see them doing that favorite career, that favorite school subject, but that they could do it in another language? Because that's really all language is. It's, it's how we live and we can, we can live in any career 
with and, and with our language and not looking at language as a, a unique sort of separate pigeonhole but rather how do we integrate and collaborate with others and i think that's part of what is supported by by having a language credential is because the majority of my students will not become future spanish teachers you know i have a few out there that's really cool and i actually have a couple of el teachers out there um, and i have a chinese teacher who you know can also do spanish but that's the minority the majority of my students are going to go into another career space and how do i empower them to use the language i love in that space and that's really i think our bottom line question absolutely and you know that's one thing i it just it's always so interesting to me when i have students come to my office and they're like i love spanish but my parents don't want me to major in it because all i could do is teach you know, and, I, and I'm like, okay, don't get offended because they've just attacked, you know, what your chosen profession is, but <laughs> let's talk about what else you could do with Spanish, right? And so, <laughs> yeah, I have, I mean, I have a former student who's a biologist and, and ended up in Ecuador doing a project um, with teaching about the, the mangroves and um, with saving the shrimp because they had to stop fishing the shrimp because the other the part of the equal cycle needed it. And they're like, I had to figure out how to say that in Spanish, wow. you know, but felt empowered. So, you know, they had enough tools to be able to figure it out. So I think that's what we do is we equip kids. Absolutely. Well, that is cool. Well, thank you. I think so that's much. good words to end on. We equip kids exactly exactly and uh I, that that could be the title of the episode <laughs> <laughs> great mind things alike i was reaching to get my pen and paper and write that down <laughs> okay yes that's sometimes it's scary how our minds work but yes thank you so much linda for You're welcome we, uh, we appreciate your your wisdom and just all the cool things that you've done um, and how you just keep promoting the profession we really appreciate it Thank you. It's a joy. Yes, thank you so much. It was so nice to talk with you. And I can't wait to go back and listen to what you had to say to Ala last week because I, I had to make a conscious decision of focusing on some things and not going, but I knew the recording was there. So yes, I can't wait to go back to it and listen to all the other gems that you had in there. Oh, yes. Um, one thing that she said that so many of the teachers just absolutely loved was taught doesn't mean caught. Yeah. Yeah. That was a tough lesson. <laughs> like, yes. what do you mean? I, I can't hold you responsible for that on the test. Uh, yes. <laughs> Not yet. Not that yet. That is so true. It's like, ah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that is very hard, you know, it's, and, and I think that, um, you know, because I have some colleagues, they get very frustrated when our students say, me llamo S. And I'm like, I understand that, I really do. But at the same time, you know, they did communicate. So, you know, it all, it's like, mm, especially in if it's 101, where do you, you know, where do you go with that? But yeah, just because you've told them doesn't mean they've got it. Yeah, I say Todd isn't caught yet. They need more practice. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Practice makes perfect. All right. Well, again, thank you very much, Linda, for joining us. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, I will, in the show notes, put, put the website for the Seal of Bilateracy. Is there a different one for the Global Seal? Yeah, it's the globalseal.com. Okay. 
So I'll add both of them and up. I, I was pretty sure of that. I meant to verify this morning, but you know, summer brain, tired brain. Um, so I'll <laughs> add that to the show notes so people can, can get to it, get the information. And then if they want to reach out, all of that is on the website. Um, so thank you for listening to the show. Step into Monday. You know where to find us via email or Twitter. Reach out to us, questions, reactions, what you might subscribe and listen to your favorite um, podcast platform. Don't forget to share with your colleagues because we are not a secret to be kept. And um, hasta Monday. (laughs) (laughs) I'm leaving it. No trans language there. (laughs) Aluneri. (laughs) 